an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff here. I'd like to welcome and thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 7 of Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari. The title of this episode is Emits a Shower of Sparks. How we stopped playing soccer and started playing Atari. This is an American Independence Day and summer camping episode. We have a discussion of the first game with a fireworks show in it, or at least the first one we can remember and how that may have directly or indirectly led to the collapse of Atari under Warner. We also have a beautiful story by Steve, firmly planted in the 80s and the vertical blank, about trying to connect with our father through music and camping. Okay, enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Into the vertical blank. I quit soccer to play Atari. So what do we what what were the sounds we just heard, Jeff? Those and sounds were Pele soccer, me scoring a goal, and a fireworks show. A fireworks show. You know, this episode is supposed to come out around the Fourth of July, and that's why we're um, talking about fireworks. Okay, I just remember the fireworks show in Pele soccer being one of the most amazing ones for me in Atari games, like early Atari video games, the fireworks show was an unnecessary addition to the game, but made everything. And it was actually, I don't think we liked it as a soccer game. No, it's a terrible soccer game. I don't remember playing it as a soccer game. What I do remember playing it for was the fireworks show. Scoring a goal and seeing the fireworks show. I think it was just like something that we didn't expect from the Atari, and that made it awesome. I know. A lot of the things at the time were about those little additions, the little 
extras that you got that made the game seem more like real life because obviously they were nothing like real life. They were total and complete abstract representations of games. And I think that one thing about all of the early games on the 2700 and the Atari 800 and the 700 to us was all the little advances made us so excited. Well, and one of those advances is Pele himself. Because to us in the 70s, we play, started playing AYSO. I don't know. When 78. Like, 78, okay. Pele was the most recognizable sports figure to us. Like, of any sports figure, now, he Pele. Was, Pretty much the old, to most people, he was the only soccer player that most people knew up until 1990. And I think for as far as Pele goes, like his signature move, I think was one time he did a bicycle kick, and that's what people remembered was like Pele scoring a goal with a bicycle kick because you could get that on the news, like you could see that it looked really good on like Wide World of Sports. Now fireworks shows, fireworks and soccer have a lot to do with dad too. Steve. Right. So of course, that? our uh, you know into the vertical blank for some reason is us just talking about dad the whole. But let's just keep it going on well, this, this it's one. Part of the part of the blank, you know. It is part of the blank. Dad didn't was not into soccer. I think when we first started playing soccer, he thought it was like unmanly or something, Probably. un-American in nineteen. Like everybody at the time, because mom mom took us to play and to do everything. I'm not sure he even came to our first games. No, he didn't. But at some point, he got one over and he came to our soccer game. Uh, he got one over because we watched the Aztecs on TV with him. Oh, and he and he suddenly got. So the Aztecs were Los Angeles's entry into the NASL, right? The North American Soccer League, which is where the New York Cosmos were also in. And who was on the Cosmos? Pele. And so who owned the Cosmos, Steve? Warner Communications, the parent company of who, Jeff? Atari. That's why we're talking about Pele soccer today, and that's why there's a fireworks show in Pele soccer. I don't know. I don't if that's know if that's why, why but show. it's pretty awesome. There's a fire... who was the programmer? A guy named Steve Wright was uh, the programmer. Steve Wright was the programmer. He is credited with. Championship Soccer, which is the precursor to Pele Soccer, it came out in 1980. And this is the exact same game without a pitcher on the cartridge. Right. I think there is a fireworks show on that one, too. Then you got Pele Soccer, which is the licensed Pele's name. Now, you said something interesting about that, because Mattel owned the license for NASL Soccer. Right. And Atari was competing with Mattel in the sports arena, and most likely they just retitled Pele Soccer so they could get people to identify with the name Pele because he was, the again, the most recognizable sports figure Right, because at the championship time. soccer came out in 1980. And, and they say related titles, Pele Soccer and Soccer, I'm pretty sure they're the exact same game. The same guy programmed them. Now, they, the model number on championship soccer is, soccer is 2616, and the model number on Pele Soccer is 2616. It's the same model number. Yeah, what about on Sears Soccer? Totally different. Sears has weird bond model numbers. So Sears model numbers are like 45-75155, and they didn't have a Pele Soccer. Now, so what's interesting, oh, so let's let's go back to Dad just for a sec. Dad did start watching soccer with us. We asked the Aztecs. We, he came to our games. Now, Dad, not someone you'd expect. He was not a sports fan except for he loved football and baseball. He was, didn't play any sports, really, but he grew up in, born in Chicago, grew up in upstate New York, wouldn't, didn't, He's not like a, at the time, the only time you'd see big soccer fans or coaches were like foreigners. Dad wasn't a foreigner. But here's the thing. Wasn't that he liked football and baseball? He liked the underdog. This he, is what he tell me all the time. He did like that. He liked the underdog. And I think that soccer to him was the ultimate sports underdog. underdog. I, bet, I bet he probably read a story in the newspaper in the sports section about how soccer wasn't a sport. And he watched his boys playing soccer. And he's like, I'm going to get into soccer because soccer is it's, a sport. 
for is the underdog. Now, he's the ultimate. He's the underdog. I remember him telling me like, I why were we rooting for the Pittsburgh Pirates against and, like, the Orioles in 1979 World like, Series? Because they're the underdog. Plus, Kent Tocchi threw that amazing underarm. The way Steve pitch, pitched, which is how I learned how to pitch too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> not too long after. Um, so this is not an episode about soccer, for instance, but it kind of is. It's more about fireworks shows and little things that were in games that we remember that sort of pushed the envelope and made us like that game just for that little touch. Like right. the first time we saw an Activision score that wasn't giant numbers. Yeah, no. The sunset I mean, in an Activision game. I think that's game. the other thing. Like one of those things in Activision game, the background sunset was amazing. But to me, all of those things are like fireworks. Fireworks are the 4th of July. We used to go buy fireworks for dad, only safe and sane ones. Right. And we used to shoot them off at our grandmother's house where we could. And fireworks were a big deal. And Pele soccer had fireworks in it. And it was soccer. And it was Pele. And it was something we could do with dad. It was like a, a way to tie ourselves to dad. Let's talk about Warner Communication for a sec. So they actually were the owner of the Cosmos. Cosmos were the most important team in the NASL. They made the most money, and they played in Giant Stadium, which is in East Rutherford, New Jersey. It would have had Pele. They had Franz Beckenbauer, who was also like an amazing sweeper on their team. Their team was loaded with players. I think there was a rule in the NASL: you had to have at least three Americans on your team, and the rest, the rest could be foreign players, something like that. So yeah. it, it, they kind of just like hired over retired foreign players to play on the team, almost like a soccer showcase league of like guys who could come to America and kind of retire and play well. The MLS did that for a while too. I guess they still do. do well, that they hire a lot younger kids now. Isn't Rooney over playing on the on the? Not anymore. I mean, it's not a. It's not as much of the, when they put their big money into younger players now. So Pele played until '79, and then we went to see the NESL. I think in '80 80 and '81, we went to go see the right. games. This right. is even after they were gone. The Aztecs played, and Dad came with us, and it sort of that was sort of our bond. We formed a bond with him over soccer that was tighter than almost anything Unex- else. Unexpected. And then he became our coach. Yeah, he became our soccer coach, which for three which years. Was Hard. Hard. For the final three years we played, difficult to have your dad as your coach for anything. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was very stereotypical. Like, after the games, he complained to us about everything the team did, and I just wanted to play. But I liked it. What was interesting, though, the crossover between us and the Pele soccer and the NASL is when the LA Aztecs became an indoor soccer team, and then it became the MISL, and they turned into the LA Lasers. Remember that? Well, they were the Aztecs first. We were there when it was the Aztecs. Okay, boys. I may be English. But I come from the town of rugby and I love rugby not footy, so you better be going someplace with this soccer, um, football talk. In any case, Jeff fat fingered his brain on this one. While the Los Angeles Aztecs did initially become an indoor soccer team, it was the LA Lasers, part of the MISL, not the Aztecs, that played in the fabulous Los Angeles Forum from 1982 to 1989, and they were owned by Lakers owner Jerry Buss. And Dad somehow got, he knew he was friends with one other coach, and that coach had friends with the, somehow with the Aztecs, and so our team got to go play a game at halftime for, in an Aztecs game, and it was 
the best thing ever. We both scored a goal yeah. on the indoor soccer field on our team, playing as if we were on a real soccer team for one moment for one in moment, our entire yeah. lives. It was great. So, and, and that was our only connection was actually playing on the field that possibly at some point would have Pele would have played on if he actually made it. To yeah, it. he didn't. Um, he never played in the. Um, in the indoor soccer, because in indoor, indoor soccer, soccer was let's let's, by, let's be honest, indoor soccer was dumb. By '79, he was gone. By '84, the league had folded. Right, and, and, they, they, and became they, it. they sort some teams fo- like sort of morphed in the MISL, the indoor soccer league. Um, MISL, NISL. There was an MISL at, at uh, eventually. There's a major indoor soccer league. Okay. Okay, Atari. Let's see your best pitch. I quit soccer to play Atari. You need more practice, Haley. You can't keep me in here, Atari. The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1,300 game variations you play on your own TV set. Don't just watch television tonight. Play it. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff here, and while editing the podcast, I wanted to add a brief story note. The reason this memory probably stands out for both Steve and I is because at this point in time, we literally quit soccer to play Atari. It was our last youth game. We played it in a professional indoor stadium, we each scored a goal, we won the game, our dad was proud, and we connected. But three weeks later... Dad bought us the Atari 800 for Christmas. We never played another AYSO soccer game again. We lost that three times a week connection through games and practices and countless strategy sessions we would have with our father trying to figure out yet another formation that would hide our team's weaknesses and accentuate its strengths. In fact, these sessions with Dad making plans were actually better than playing the games. We had to find other ways of connecting with him, which wasn't easy as Steve and I were growing into angst-filled teens while Dad was winding down his career in aerospace and trying to find parts of his own lost youth in his own vertical blank. Later in life, we would both pick up the game again. We'd play with our father as often as possible until his health would not let him play any longer. Then we joined an indoor soccer league. He was even in the audience when our little upstart team of novice 30 to 33 year old adults took on the vaunted league champions, Latino United, a team filled with incredibly skilled 18 to 25 year olds. In that indoor league, for one game, Steve and I took over the pitch. I scored the winning goal and for one last time, experienced some minor sports glory with dad in the audience. But then I stopped playing again. So did Steve. I started having kids of my own and then started collecting Atari. But that's a story for another day. Back in 1983, like Pele in the Atari commercial, we literally stopped playing soccer and started playing Atari. I quit soccer to play Atari. Woo! <laughs>
So what's interesting is Steve Ross was the chairman of Warner Communications at the time when when they also owned Cosmos and Pele became a star for the Atari 2600. But Steve Ross is also known as the guy who may have ruined Atari because he's the guy who wanted Steven Spielberg so heavily to come over to be a filmmaker for Warner Brothers that he's the one who offered such a high amount of money as a guarantee for the E.T. game. I think it was $20 million was the guarantee they would have to make just to pay off Steven Spielberg on E.T. And of course, we all know what what happened to E.T. It probably sold two and a half million copies. Not bad for a game, but to recoup the license fee, the the money that they're going to pay Steven Spielberg, all that, Steve Ross might have been the guy who, because he wanted to bring Spielberg over, is also the guy who might have settled Atari with so much debt that they couldn't pay it off. Because of not that that the ET game was bad, but because of the promises from the executive suite. Uh, from Wikipedia. Okay. Yes. I'm gonna read you this little thing from Wikipedia. Any big good Wikipedia, so don't let's not um let's not pretend this is research. But let's just say it says development following the commercial success of the film E.T. E. in June 1982, Steve Ross, chief executive of Atari's parent company, Warner Communications, started negotiations with Steven Spielberg and Universal Pictures to acquire the license to produce a video game based on the film. In late June, Warner announced its exclusive worldwide rights to market coin-operated and console games based on the movie. Although the exact details of the transaction were not disclosed in the announcement, it was later reported that Atari paid close to 20 to $25 million for the rights. A high number for video game licensing at the time. Very high. <laughs> when asked by Ross what he thought about making an ET based video game, CEO Ray Kassar said, I think it's a dumb idea. We've never really made an action game out of a movie. An arcade-based E.T. property had also been planned, but this was deemed to be impossible given the short notice. Unless he's misquoted, Ray Kassar was wrong here. Superman was the first licensed action-adventure game for the Atari VCS, released in 1979. I mean, he was only the CEO. So, what would he know? Also, 8-Bit Steve got the numbers wrong, which will not be the first or last time. According to Wikipedia, only 1.5 million ET games were sold, leaving possibly 3.5 million unsold copies. So, what are we talking about? So, so we're talking about the fact that NASL sort of is dying at the time. Pele is a license that they had that they could use. And what does Ross do soon after? Speculatively, Atari goes to license something else and license E.T. with the idea that maybe Spielberg would come over and do more movies for Warner Brothers, I guess. And basically, Atari becomes somewhat of a sacrificial lamb to Steve Ross wanting to work with Steven Spielberg. Right. And so, everybody is kind of blaming... Oh, a lot of people that blame Atari for Warner's problems, guess what? Ross was actually Warner's problem. Right. He was using Atari, in this case, as sort of a, you know, a pawn in a much bigger game. Now, guess what? Movies last year, what, made $20, $30 billion? We can look it up. It's something like that. And video games are a $100 billion industry. No, 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 no. Boys, I am certainly earning my paycheck this episode. Steve can't do math obviously, or he would be more successful at his job. However, the facts don't change his point. 
In 2018 the movie industry was estimated at $41.7 billion while the video game industry was estimated at a whopping $137.8 billion. Yeah. Video games would one day dwarf movies, movies in generating cash, and he kind of gave that up to try and court Steven Spielberg. To court Steven Spielberg and get a game done so quickly and pay him so much money that it basically saddled Atari with with more debt than they could handle. What I have come to understand from our time playing Atari games is that, yes, if you read the instructions for E.T., it's actually a decent game. But up to that point, except for really Indiana Jones, right. you, you mean didn't, Raiders of Lost Ark. Raiders Lost Ark. You did not have to read the instructions to play an Atari game. There was not that much to do. So picking up a, an Atari console, people would open an Atari box, the instructions went somewhere, the box went somewhere, cartridge went in, and then they're trying to play the game, and it's E.T. and they can't figure it out. Right. I mean, we don't we don't have to get into discussion about no, whether no. E.T. is a bad game or not, but I think the connection made here is Steve Ross... Cosmos and Pele, but then for us, the fireworks show. So coming back around to the fireworks show, these little, like, little advances or graphical, like, enhancements treats. or treats that for us made video games, we stuck them directly in the vertical blank. And this fireworks show is absolutely one of them. I even remember Arnie Katz or Bill Kunkel in Electronic Games saying, and what about that fireworks show? Like, it was, it was a big deal at the time to see something extra, because most games just had trouble simulating what they needed to simulate. And here's this amazing little extra in a game that otherwise wasn't a great game, but actually compelled you to play. An amazing award that compelled you to actually try to I score. I wanted to try to score. Even though it was hard to score, you wanted to score to see the fireworks show. Yeah, and I think added to that, as other sports games came out, I would look for these things. The seventh inning stretch in GameStar Baseball, or Star League right. Baseball. Like, if the team ran out on the field, I can think of touchdown football, the team runs out on the field. Like, it was like anything that would somewhat simulate the real world experience of seeing that sport was a big deal. And ironically, now they throw all that stuff into sports games and nobody cares because it's all about simulating the actual game itself. All the extras are nice. Time you want those little extras. You know, the Mattel and Mattel had the had all the little extras in their game, their sports games and their things because they had the memory and the 16-bit processor to do it. And so we were always kind of looking at what did Mattel and Television do? Why can't let's get that on the Atari and somehow uh, they didn't have a fireworks show. No, and you know, I was that fireworks show stuck in my head for so long. When we first started doing Flash stuff, the first thing I made was a fireworks show generator so that you could sit down and kind of define fireworks and make them explode in the screen because I wanted to make a fireworks show so badly you, based on Pele Soccer. Do you remember what happens in our Atari ST game that you and I wrote called Zamboozle Poker Dice, which is Yahtzee with, on steroids when you get a Zamboozle, which is all five of the same dice, Steve? What did we make? A fireworks show. Straight in the vertical blank. One other thing I want to mention about Dad is I have a YouTube video I did several years ago called What is a $50 or $49.99 firework look like? And it's basically two minutes of a safe and sane firework seeing how long it would last. When I got all of our home movies that Mom and Dad had on 8mm film and I got them all developed, there's one in there called like 4th of July 1968. And literally it's Dad doing the exact same thing. Same thing it's you did, 1968. Right? There's no pictures of the family or anything. <laughs> it's simply three minutes of the fireworks going off. The most useless 
three minutes of classic film ever, but like totally identified like dad and I have the same gene about like probably wanting... went out and bought like the ten dollar box at the time, which was probably the biggest I box know. you got or twenty dollar box was probably like, the three hundred dollar box now or something it's got like that. Pinwheels and all sorts of stuff. Jeff was pretty close here. According to a Red Devil Fireworks advertising flyer found on Google Image Search, the giant assortment of fireworks, from that year, was priced at $10.95. Nice job, it looks like if you guys just talked about fireworks all the time, I might get more Fortnite playing in, instead of fact-checking your constant babbling. So anyway, talking about how we made connections to Dad, since this is a, a quick summer episode this week, we're going to play a story that we've never played before. No. But it's not really about Atari, although there is video games sort of mentioned in it once. This is a story about another way we tried to connect with our dad, and this is through music. And this is a story called A Moment Near Aspen Grove. I hope you enjoy it. A moment near Aspen Grove. We were on our way to Aspen Grove, a small campground in the Sierra Nevada mountains, a high elevation desert landscape in Northern California. The campground was near Mono Lake, where Clint Eastwood filmed my dad's favorite movie, High Plains Drifter. It was also close to Bodie, one of the largest still standing ghost towns in the gold country, where the California gold rush began in the 1840s. My dad loved these types of things the most, history, cowboys, treasure maps, and the beauty of desert wildlife. I'm called to these places, he told us over and over. When the call came, his boys, my brother and I, dutifully joined him on his adventures. As we drove the last 100 miles or so to our destination, my dad stuck a cassette in the car tape player, Luciano Pavarotti. My dad listened to only three cassettes, Pavarotti, Julio Iglesias, and Laura Branigan. On these long trips to the gold country, my brother and I swapped seats halfway through the eight-hour drive. The good half was spent in solitude, in the back, in the camper, reading computer magazines and listening to The Alarm, The Smithereens, or Soul Asylum on a Walkman. The front seat was for sitting up, helping navigate, and listening to my dad's three tapes. My brother and I took these trips with my dad once a year. Dad would spend months planning the route, the location, the campsites, and where we would search for treasure or artifacts. His hunger for adventure was fed by his boredom from his day job, working on government contracts at Hughes Aircraft. He talked often about boredom and encouraged my brother and I to find a way to fight it when we grew older. However, my dad's need for adventure was matched only by my desire to forget about school and work and disappear for a few days in the wilderness. The destinations were interesting, but the car trips there and back were unbearably long and ironically, given my dad's quest to alleviate it, boring as all hell. While in the front seat on a long drive, conversations with my father were pained and strained and filled with uncomfortable silence. He could not hear well in his right ear, and that happened to be the ear that pointed towards the passenger seat that I sat in. At home, 
I could enter his room, sit on the foot of his bed, and capture his attention long enough to strike up a conversation about one of his passions. This was the best way to talk to my dad, on his turf, discussing his stuff. Our conversations ranged from the JFK assassination to Civil War battles, from Kevin Costner movies to the mysterious reasons why I had not yet graduated from college. So to me, it was four hours in the front seat, virtually alone, looking at miles and miles of empty desert, listening to the three tapes my dad allowed in his truck. Not that there was anything necessarily wrong with Pavarotti, Iglesias, or really even Laura Branigan. It was just I had no connection to them other than the fact that my dad liked them. I liked my own music and my own stuff, and I wanted to listen to it as we drove to our destination. A little past the midway point on Interstate 395, we stopped in the town of Lone Pine, on our way up towards Mono Lake. Lone Pine was unique in that a local geographical feature named the Alabama Hills was used as a filming location for hundreds of movies and TV shows. My dad's favorite movie from his childhood, Gunga Din, was filmed there. We did not need gas or food at that point in the trip, but my dad usually made some kind of excuse to stop in Lone Pine. I theorized that it was to feel the vibes of the area, an expression he used to describe when he was making a soulful connection to the world around him. I was as suspect of the concept then as I am curious of it now. Stuck in my own world, I took the stop as a chance to switch tapes on my dad. When he was out pumping a few gallons of unnecessary gas, I slipped something into the tape player I thought he might like. I never tried to play him the alarm before. He must have heard them being played in my bedroom thousands of times before, but he never mentioned it, and neither did I. They were an 80s band inspired by punk and Woody Guthrie. They played mostly acoustic guitars and harmonicas at a lightning pace and sing about hope and social justice. However, if you did not listen closely, they sounded a bit like cowboys belting out vaguely patriotic rock, which I thought my dad might appreciate, at least on the surface. As our Toyota pickup with the Lance Camper on the back rolled out of the Lone Pine Exxon station, the first strums of Absolute Reality acoustic version came out of the stereo. I chose this song because, one, it was up-tempo but acoustic. Two, I liked it. Three, it was the first song on the tape. As Lone Pine became a small spot in the rearview mirror, I nervously listened to the song play, trying not to look in my dad's direction. At first, he said nothing. I took this as a good sign. Then after a couple minutes, he started in. I do not like his voice, he said. My dad was referring to Mike Peters, the lead vocalist for The Alarm. While no one could confuse Mike Peters with Luciano Pavarotti, I liked his vocal abilities very much. He had a warm, hard twinge to his voice, almost raspy, but not quite a growl. He did not scream like a punk singer, nor did he have a falsetto like many of his new wave contemporaries. His voice was right in the middle, and he sang songs like he meant them, and he wanted you, the listener, to understand that he meant them. It was a genuine sort of earnestness that I could then, and still now, completely identify with. However, my dad saying, I do not like his voice, translated to, turn it off, and so I did. The truth was, my dad's interests and opinions dominated much of my life. While my mom kept very quiet about her beliefs, besides carting us to Catholic Church as often as we would allow, 
My dad was very outspoken about what he thought about the world around us, and it had a huge effect on my life. Long before I formed my own alternative opinions, his politics became my own. He only ate organic food and avoided wheat, dairy, and sugar. So the diet in our house was formed along those lines. The movies he liked were the movies I watched. He liked model trains and stamp collecting, so I did too. He liked the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Dallas Cowboys and rooting for the underdog, and I was inclined to go along with him. He liked back roads, ghost towns, and looking for things that helped him connect with the past, and he taught me to like those things as well. This was not necessarily a bad thing, mind you, but it also left little space for differing opinions or ideas in our family dynamic. The lack of space had a physical manifestation as well. We were a family of six, sharing a tiny house with one bathroom. My brother and I shared a 10 by 10 bedroom for 24 years together, piled on top of each other as we grew from 20 inch long, 3.5 pound premature twins into six foot tall, 170 pound college students. My dad talked often about adding to the house so we could have more room, but it never happened. As he got older, his own hobby sucked away most of the disposable income in our household, and that became his priority. By the time I was a teenager, I was still sleeping in the same bed he made for me when I was three years old, a piece of old styrofoam laid over a wood board, and our bathroom had a huge rotting hole in the floor. However, his bedroom drawers were filled with priceless Civil War artifacts that he collected, hidden away for eternity. Funny, though, if you give a kid a little space, he'll run with it. My brother and I filled our tiny slice of personal area with things that were totally our own that we bought with our own money from jobs at the public library, me, a record store, my brother. Posters of bands, records, tapes, and CDs, books and magazines about music, a guitar, an amp, a TV, a stereo system, all manner of video and computer games, discs, cartridges, plus a rotating stash of candy that my dad never knew existed, but we feared he would one day uncover. These were all things that I could call my own, and the one thing that stood above them all was the rock band that caught my attention when I was 13 and had been my saving grace for my entire teenage years, The Alarm. The Alarm was one of the few things in the world that I discovered myself. My sisters had not introduced them to me. My mom had not sent me to a class to learn about them, and my dad had not played them for me. I was the one who saw their video on Video One with Richard Blade in 1983. I was the one who spent my confirmation money on their first album, Declaration, in 1984. I was the one who listened to it every single night in 8th grade on an old tape recorder with giant headphones. They were my band, and I kept on following them even after my fickle school friends grew up and moved on to other things. I collected all the records, and when there was nothing else to buy, I collected the live tapes and the press releases, and the posters, and the t-shirts, and anything else I could find that would solidify the alarm as my band, something I discovered myself. But in the cab of the truck on our way to Aspen Grove, things were different. My dad's presence was overwhelming. This was his space, and I was just visiting. I admired him very much for not being a fence-sitter. He had strong beliefs, and even if I had grown out and away from most of them, I did not necessarily want him to change himself. He had come to his conclusions by living his own life his way. He was also totally undebatable. If he did not like the song, it was time for something else. I put his Laura Brannigan tape in, and we listened for a while. 
all the way past the side of the Manzanar Japanese internment camp and through the town of Independence, Brannigan sang her sweet, energetic pop songs. I let the tape run out and then inserted another cassette with the alarm on it. We were just outside Big Pine when the alarm EP made it past the leader and the first few notes of The Stand started to play out of the speakers in the cab of the Toyota. The alarm EP might be my favorite record ever recorded. It was five slices of what made the alarm great and what made them stand out among their contemporaries. On that record, they sounded like no other band that came before or after. The sound was at once punk and pop and folk played with carefully crafted wild abandon. It combined harmonicas, barnstorm stomping, electrified acoustic strumming, military-style snare drumming, and hoops and hollers into a mix that defied description. If I had to find one, it might be the Battle of Little Bighorn, Custer's Last Stand. It was thrown into a blender and set to music. To me, the sound was imperfect, organic, and life-affirming. The minute I first heard it back in 1983, I knew I had found a missing part of my soul, raggedly shoved into place. And for the first time in my life, I felt like a whole person. However, that was my own reaction. My dad's was something entirely different. As we continued on our journey, and as the spirited glory of the alarm's music spilled out of the tape player, I waited for a clue to his inner thoughts. As the stand led into Across the Border, he spoke. I do not understand this music you and your sisters like. It's too fast. It has no melody. My dad's thoughts were now on record. I stopped the cassette and took it out. Nervous and frustrated, I fumbled a bit, putting it back into its case. I opened Julio Iglesias and put it on instead. At least there was a tenuous connection to the alarm with Julio. The image of alarm guitarist Dave Sharp wearing a Julio Iglesias t-shirt in the Strength Tour program from 1986 was burnt into my brain. I'd spent countless hours in the 80s lying on my bed, leafing through it, listening to various alarm albums and wishing a tour would come through our town. To me, the image and images of the alarm were almost as important as their music. Western outfits, red exploding poppies, religious symbols, massive guitar arm swings, and mile-high electric shock hair, just to name a few. When I was 14 years old in 1984, starving for meaning and belonging, I ate that shit up. The alarm's identity became my identity. Always an outsider looking in, I wanted to live in a world where the alarm was the biggest, most important thing going, and the messages from their music, interpreted, perceived, or otherwise, were understood and enjoyed by everyone equally. By aligning myself with the alarm, I felt like I was part of something bigger than myself. This was my secret frame of reference. It was perspective I wore like a shield to help me through high school and beyond. Julio Iglesias serenaded all the women he loved before in the front of the pickup as we approached Bishop, California on the I-395. As we drove, the amazing scenery shot by at 75 miles per hour. To the east was the parched dry lake of Owens River Valley, its river-fed lifeblood diverted to water the suburban lawns of Los Angeles hundreds of miles to the south. To the west were the high, rocky peaks of the Sierras, once an impassable obstacle to manifest destiny, now a virtual playground dotted with ski resorts and hiking trails. 
This part of Northern California, which has ties to history and wide open spaces, had become a place of refuge for suburbanites. People like my dad, who worked tough modern jobs with little reward, building important, government-contracted, secret machines all year long just so they could come here and spend a few days pretending that the industrial progress of their employ had never occurred in the first place. Whether he or I liked it or not, my dad's job in the defense industry gave me a relatively comfortable life. Weird and tumultuous at times, sometimes dangling just a few notches above the poverty line, but still safe. On the other hand, my dad's upbringing was anything but. He did not talk about it much. It was trips like the one to Aspen Grove where he would let his guard down and tell my brother and I the secrets of his past. They came in snatches of anecdotes instead of long-winded stories. Among shaggy dog jokes and penny poker games lit by a campfire, we heard tales of his own father's violent anger, of being sent away by his parents to live on a co-op farm when he was just four years old, about trying to make ends meet in the Great Depression, about fighting in World War II, working in coal mines, getting robbed in San Francisco, and trying to make it as a TV actor in the 1950s. There was nothing romantic or reverent about the way he told these stories. They all had a twinge of pain, guilt, and lessons learned. I hung on to these stories throughout my childhood, trying to piece them together to understand who my father really was as a person. If the moments I had to understand my father were few, the moments I had to earn his respect and approval were even fewer. In many ways, I always felt like I'd let him down. For every soccer goal I scored for him as a coach, there was a flub tackle or a missed pass that he seemed to remember more fondly. My dad loved to ride motorcycles, but I was never good at it. My dad loved to shoot guns, but I never had any proclivity for it. I did share a love of the outdoors and hiking and camping with him. However, that was just the start for my dad. A vacation trip, like the one to Aspen Grove, was not for idle camping and hiking. We were there for business. We were there to look for treasure, discover artifacts, feel vibes, and prospect for gold. Vacations with my dad were work, the real work he wanted to be doing instead of the drafting table prison sentence 400 miles to the south. Like I said, he planned these trips for an entire year. He was desperate to break the monotony of his life with some kind of adventure. He wanted us to get up early, dig some dirt, pan for gold, dig more dirt, get wet, get dirty, and then dig some more. And I have to admit, it was fun, at least for a little while, a couple days maybe, but not for a week or two. My brother and I worked so hard at school and our part-time jobs, we just wanted to rest on vacation, read some books and magazines. That's all I really wanted to discover, some peace and rest. My dad, though, he had other ideas. Deep in the second half of his life, I figured he was searching for meaning the only way he could manage. On vacation from work, two weeks out of the year. We would be at our destination within an hour, and I still wanted my dad to like the alarm. I wanted him to like something that I liked. I wanted him to understand who I was. I tried to understand him by watching Clint Eastwood Westerns with him, by reading his conspiracy theories, sampling his politics, and by attempting to enjoy his pastimes. Now, I just wanted to find one thing of my own that he would accept as legitimate. I may have still considered the alarm mine, but by the time we were on the road to Aspen Grove in the 90s, they had long since broken up. The Alarms music that most inspired me came from their rough around the edges period in the early 80s. Back then they were a punk inspired new wave band with a lot of interesting things to say and a lot of interesting ways to say it. They helped tear down the walls of album oriented rock in an era before the term alternative was ever coined. However, as they progressed through the years and became better musicians with a more refined sound, the edge to the music, the part that I most identified with, disappeared. 
When punk broke again with Nirvana in 1991, they found themselves as part of the establishment being torn down on the other side of the alternative. They broke up soon after and left a huge rift in my own personal landscape that I have never quite filled since. So at that moment, I decided to pull out all the stops. I found my absolute favorite song by The Alarm from their Strength album, the song I knew would be my last best chance to get my dad to understand why I liked them so much. I had held it back because I wanted to have some ammo to fight future front seat battles, but with time running out, it was now or never. I queued it up, and it started to play. The mournful harmonica opening of Spirit of 76 came out of the tinny Toyota speakers. My dad said nothing, but I saw one of his eyes open wide. He used to play harmonica for us when we were little kids. He was quite good at it, and I knew he loved the sound of the instrument. Then the vocals came in, some of the best sung vocals The Alarm ever produced. I could see in his cold, blue steel eyes the lyrics taking him back to some place only he knew in his head. I watched and waited. As each note passed, I realized I might have found the right song. I might have just imagined it, but at that moment I think I saw a smile start to crawl across his face. His head nodded to the music. I'm pretty sure his head nodded anyway. He liked it. I liked it too. No words were exchanged between us, but something had happened. And then the song changed. The slow part broke into crashing guitars and a rock beat. My dad fell back to his everyday poker face as quickly as it had lit up when Spirit of 76 started. He did not say anything, but he did not have to. This part of the song was not his part. This was the music of my sisters, the music I liked, the music he did not understand. I self-consciously listened to the rest of the song. I did not want it to be over. I was hoping to see his face light up again, and I waited for it. When he did light up once more, it was during the bridge, when the song slows down for a few contemplative seconds. With those few lines, I could see relevance to the music and lyrics in my dad's eyes. I could have imagined it, but to this day, I believe it was there. 
it seemed that I'd finally found the one moment in a song that was worth the effort of trying to play music for my dad. At that instant, I wanted the song to last forever, so I could stay in this place I had discovered, a place where I believed my dad and I truly shared something in common, a place where I had found something of my own, something I discovered on my own, that my dad then discovered he liked just as much as I did. When the song finally ended, I took the cassette tape out and turned off the radio. We were just passing the turnoff to the 120 at Levining. We were near Aspen Grove. We would be at our campsite in minutes. We sat quietly the rest of the way. We turned into the Aspen Grove campground and found a nice site by the river. We all loved camping by the river. The sound of the rushing water was the most soothing sound I could imagine. We made camp and made a fire. We cooked hot dogs and marshmallows and listened to the music of the rushing water, the way my dad so perfectly described it, as we played poker for pennies in the dying light of the day. Later in the trip, we did all the things my dad loved. We fished for trout, then threw them back in the river. We used metal detectors to never find buried treasure. We explored old dirt roads looking for ghost town sites, and we shot cans and bottles with hollow point bullets from a forty five automatic. When we drove home a week later, I had four hours in the front seat to kill, but I never directly tried to play my dad the alarm again. Not on that trip or any other. Instead, I lived in reverie to recall a single moment, real or imagined, when I chose to believe that we both enjoyed the same music at the same time for the same reasons. This is one moment I hold dear to this day. A moment when I so badly needed to make a connection with the man who I knew as my father at that point for 23 years, but never really knew as a person. And what I'd give today to have just one more trip to the gold country with my dad, sitting in the cab of his truck, navigating the I-395 while negotiating our relationship. But at least I have that moment. A moment in the cab of a one-ton pickup truck, hauling a Lance camper with my brother inside, speeding down the highway towards a middle-class refuge. A moment that occurred only once in my life, near a small campground in the Sierra Nevada mountains. A high-elevation desert landscape in Northern California. A moment near Aspen Grove. Thank you for listening to S2E7 Emits a Shower of Sparks. How we stopped playing soccer and started playing Atari. I'd like to point out that I was wrong and Wayne Rooney is currently playing in Major League Soccer for DC United. We have been putting up more and more content on our Into the Vertical Blank YouTube channel. So please like and subscribe if you want to help create a community over there in that space. Each podcast episode automatically goes there, and I've been creating videos of Atari 8-bit HomeSoft 
and Atari ST debug compilation discs with commentary and information on the games. We plan a lot more content on other systems and games and videos to complement the podcast. Thanks, and until next time, Into the Vertical Blank. Into the Vertical Blank. Superstar soccer player Edson Arantes de Nascimento, better known to fans as Pele, signed a contract today with the New York Comets, Cosmos, a member of the North American Soccer League. The arrival of a man known as the King of Soccer was a big-time event. Sal Marciano reports. I quit soccer to play Atari. I quit soccer to play Atari. The official signing of what's described as the biggest contract for a team athlete in the history of sports. The reported figure is between four and seven million dollars and could be higher depending on the sale of Pele endorsed equipment. Not bad for a fourth grade dropout. And could be higher depending on the sale of Pele endorsed equipment. Pele endorsed equipment. Pele endorsed equipment. Paley endorsed, Paley endorsed, Paley endorsed, Paley Haley endorsed, Paley endorsed, Paley endorsed. Depending on the sale of Pele endorsed equipment. E futebol, o nosso soccer. Pele soccer, me scoring a goal, and a fireworks show. A fireworks show. Here the show. A fireworks show. Here the show. A fireworks show. Here the show. A fireworks show. Fireworks. 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 show. I quit soccer to play Atari. Me here, Atari. The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1300 game variations you play on your own TV set. Don't just watch television tonight, play it.
into the vertical blank. Next frame calculated, prepare to write new data, V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.